Welcome to the Bold Speak Podcast. I'm Anthony Creedon. On this latest installment of the podcast, we'll begin our new study on the Sermon on the Mount entitled Condition of the Heart, a study I am very excited about and very excited to bring you. And on The Wire, I'm going to discuss the social media hub that has become the official site for complaining. Some of you may already know what I mean by that. All of that and more as we give them the bold speak. Welcome again, everyone. Very glad you could join me on this episode of the Bold Speak podcast as we are getting into something new, uh, something exciting. I have to confess that I am beyond excited to start this latest series of Condition of the Heart. Uh, to be honest, the Sermon on the Mount has become a, a bit of a passion for me over the years. I've, I've taught it in the classroom multiple times, and each year that I've taught it, it became more and more apparent to me that Matthew's construction of Jesus' teaching here is absolutely vital to understanding who we are as the church. In fact, I would go so far as to say that, that much of what we struggle with in the Christian church today could be adequately addressed if we would pay more attention to the Sermon on the Mount. So it's just, it's, it's very appropriate, it's very relevant, I think, for, for who uh, kind of we are as the church and, and what we want to be, and especially uh, toward the mission of Boldspeak. Uh, and so with that in mind, we're going we're gonna to set out to grow in our understanding of what Jesus is communicating in the Sermon on the Mount, and hopefully, as a result, gain wisdom and insight into what it means to be the church, uh, and maybe even be the church again uh, if we've lost our way. Now, if you've had a chance already to jump over to the website and, and pick up the study guide, that's fantastic. Uh, you won't regret it uh, because there's a lot in these three chapters of Matthew to digest. And notes can be super helpful here, uh, as well as all the additional points and, and references and things that I give you in that uh, in that study guide there. If you haven't yet picked up the study guide, uh, fear not, because it isn't complicated at all. Uh, just head over to our website, www.theboldspeak.com, click on the store, and you can pick it up for only $10. It's a 35-page study guide that will give you the chance to, to dive deeper into this study and really invest yourself into a study that I'm, I'm pretty confident will help you understand what it means to live the gospel and, and maybe even change your view on what it means to be the church. Okay, so I strongly encourage you to go pick that up today. If you haven't, uh, you will not regret it. Now, as we jump in here, as always, just to let you know, I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. All right, but if you don't have an English Standard Version of the Bible, an ESV Bible, that's okay. Go ahead and grab whatever um, translation of the Bible that you uh, think kind of works best for you as you follow along. Maybe that's NIV, NRSV, uh, whatever it is. I'll give you all the references so you can follow along very easily. And if you happen to be driving at the moment or don't have a Bible with you or don't have access to a Bible, not to worry. I'm going to read all of these portions of Scripture to you uh, so you can follow along easily if you're driving in your car or whatever. All right, so um, let's go ahead and get into this study. If you have the study guide with you, go ahead and open up to page four to begin lesson one. Now, for those of you who happen to have the study guide, uh, there's a couple of things I want to point out to you. Uh, first, notice that there are eight lessons in this study. So we're going to go through each of the eight lessons, breaking them up into two podcasts per lesson. And you'll also notice with each lesson, there's a, a section at the top in the red that says to begin. 
The purpose of this section is to help to kind of focus our minds on some things and draw our attention to some things as we enter into each lesson so that our, our hearts and minds are sort of prepared for what we're going to be discussing. All right, so if you open up to page four, uh, you'll see that there is the to begin section, and it says this. Bible study can be complicated for a lot of reasons. One of the most frequent reasons Bible study can be difficult is because the Bible is one long, cohesive story. Why would that make it more difficult? Well, because unless you're starting in Genesis each time you do a Bible study, you will always need to make sure to include some historical context to help the narrative make sense. And it's on this point that we begin our study of the Sermon on the Mount. The Gospel of Matthew serves as an extension of the Old Testament as it demonstrates a continuity with the covenant God establishes with Israel and the fulfillment of that covenant with the birth of Jesus Christ. Because of this, it is critical to understand a few things about the writer as well as the history of God's people leading up to the time of Christ's birth. And so that is what we're going to attempt to do. All right, we're going to try to take a look at the history here, get a better understanding of what's happening uh, in the times leading up to the Gospel of Matthew, and then take a little bit of a look at Matthew himself. Uh, who is he? What are his uh, primary objectives in the writing of this Gospel? All right, so we're going to do that uh, in this lesson. All right, so let's jump into the first section here called the basics. All right, so question one. The events of Matthew occur 400 years after the events of Malachi. Right, so that's a, that's a lot of time to, to try to figure out what was going on and how we got to the place that we're at by the time we get to the Gospel of Matthew, right? So 400 years between Malachi and Matthew, a lot happens um, that builds a context for a lot of the things that we're going to be discussing. And so that's where we're going to focus a lot of our attention today. All right, question two. This time is known as the intertestamental period. All right, just means the time between the two testaments, right? The time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's a phrase you'll hear uh, thrown around in lots of different Bible studies, so it's probably just good to know that. All right, question three. The book of accepted writings from that time period is known as the Apocrypha. Right? Some of you may be familiar with that or have heard that before. Uh, the Apocrypha, it contains... 14 to 19 books uh, believed to be written between Malachi and Matthew. Now, this 14 to 19 books depends on which view you take of what is accepted as an official apocryphal scripture. All right? For those of you who've never, ever heard of the Apocrypha before, don't feel bad. It's, it's understandable. Uh, the reason is that the Apocrypha has actually a lot of controversy and debate around it. Even the word Apocrypha itself uh, is derived from the Greek word apocryphos, which means hidden, all right? So uh, truth is, many many in Christianity don't really know what to do with these books, all right? And in each case, the, the books don't fit the criteria of what's uh, kind of traditionally accepted to be in the Bible, but they do have a lot of history and tradition in them that, that we can't just dismiss. We can't just throw it away. There's a lot of content there. So um, they're kind of collected. They were collected into this volume known as the Apocrypha for the church to, to use as we see fit. All right. And so uh, we're going to pull some of the things out of the Apocrypha that are actually incredibly helpful. All right. So while many agree that they, they don't necessarily fit with what's accepted in the Bible, many also agree that these books still remain incredibly helpful today. 
In fact, the Apocrypha is most helpful in filling in some of the major gaps in the history between Malachi and Matthew in this intertestamental period with the narrative of, of Judas Maccabeus and the Maccabean Wars. And it's, it's here that the Apocrypha will be extremely helpful to us. All right, so uh, let's get a fuller picture of the biblical story. All right, let's, let's go ahead and start with reading uh, from the Bible and kind of get a context for the beginning of that 400-year period as we kind of quickly make our way through it to get to, to Matthew. All right, so we're going to go ahead and start with 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 11, and Jeremiah 43, verses 1 to 7. 2 Kings says, The king of Assyria carried the Israelites away to Assyria and put them in Halah, and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the city of the Medes. And from Jeremiah 43. When Jeremiah finished speaking to all the people, all these words of the Lord their God, with which the Lord their God had sent him to them, Azariah the son of Hoshaiah, and Johanan the son of Kareah, and all the insolent men said to Jeremiah, You are telling a lie. The Lord our God did not send you to say, Do not go to Egypt to live there. But Baruch, the son of Neriah, has set you against us to deliver us into the hand of the Chaldeans, that they may kill us or take us into exile in Babylon. So Yohanan, the son of Korea, and all the commanders of the forces and all the people did not obey the voice of the Lord to remain in the land of Judah. But Yohanan, the son of Korea, and all the commanders of the forces took all the remnant of Judah who had returned to live in the land of Judah from all the nations to which they had been driven. The men, the women, the children, the princesses, and every person from whom Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had left with Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan. Also, Jeremiah, the prophet, and Baruch, the son of Neriah. And they came into the land of Egypt, for they did not obey the voice of the Lord. And they arrived at Tophanes. All right, question four asks, to what lands in the previous passages do you hear that Israel and Judah scattered? Now, in the, the first reading from 2 Kings, we hear that they settled in Halah and in the city of the Medes. Now, this is the area northeast of what we traditionally understand to be the Holy Land. In fact, the, the capital city of this Assyrian Empire is a city that you may be familiar with from the famous narrative of Jonah. It's Nineveh. All right, so, so under the Assyrians, Israel was taken captive to the Assyrians and scattered to the northeast. All right? Now, in Jeremiah, we see the people of God fleeing from the, the Babylonian captivity into the land of Egypt, which is southwest of the Holy Land, against the will of God, as spoken through Jeremiah. In other words, what we're seeing here is that the people of God are scattered throughout the land, northeast, southwest, everywhere, All right, in, in what is traditionally known in question five. All right, so question five, this scattering of the people of God is known as a Jewish diaspora, all right? Diaspora, D-I-A-S-P-O-R-A, diaspora. All right, the Jewish diaspora simply refers to the dispersion of the Jewish people as a result of the persecution and captivity from invading nations. All right, this is one of many diasporas that happens over the life of the Jewish people. All right, so this is uh, this causes the Jews to kind of scatter and settle in lands outside of the Holy Land. 
All right, now in your study guide, you're going to see a little note there that says this. The, the significance of this dispersion of God's people throughout the land cannot be overstated. In fact, much of the events in the Gospels only make sense when placed in the context of the history of this time, including the Sermon on the Mount. As a result, we will spend some time getting a brief picture of, of kind of what occurred during that time between Malachi and Matthew in the midst of this dispersion so that we can better understand Matthew's account of Jesus. All right. So if you look in your study guide, uh, there's a little bit uh, section there called a closer look. It's going to give you some references from the Maccabees and a place that you can go online uh, to read those if you want some kind of further study on your own. And I would encourage you to do that. It's It really is fascinating to, to kind of read this narrative for yourself. Uh, but we're going to do our best to sort of summarize it here for you and, and kind of set the stage uh, for what we see in the Gospel of Matthew and particularly in the Sermon on the Mount. All right, so let's go ahead and move on to our, our next section here where we're going to get into each of the individual nations. All right, so we're going to go ahead and start with the Persians, all right? And to get an idea for how the Persians kind of play a role in the life of God's people here, uh, we're going to look at a few sections from the Old Testament again. Uh, we're going to go to Ezra chapter 1 and chapter 7, and then Nehemiah chapter 2. All right, so again, I'm reading all from the English Standard Version, but you can follow along in any translation you like. All right, so let's begin. This is Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Ezra chapter 7, verses 11 to 20. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven. Peace. And now I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel, or their priests or Levites in my kingdom, who freely offers to go to Jerusalem, may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God which is in your hand, and also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, with all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia, and with the freewill offerings of the people and the priests vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. With this money, then, you shall with all diligence buy bulls, rams, and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. 
the vessels that have been given you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. And finally, from Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. In the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me." So here's what we see in these verses. In Ezra we read that Cyrus, the, the king of Persia, allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple with the resources of the Persians. Then Artaxerxes affirms that decree by saying that not only can they rebuild the temple, but the Jews can freely return to Jerusalem. Right? So around the same time, Nehemiah gets permission to go back and rebuild the walls, right? once again establishing Jerusalem as the, the main hub for the people of God. So uh, following the diaspora, right, the scattering out uh, with the Assyrian and Babylonian captivity, the Persians allow the Jews to re-centralize around Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls and, and re-establish themselves. Right? And, and everything, was, everything was great, uh, but it, it wouldn't stay that way. Following a revolution by the Jews in 350 BC against Artaxerxes III, the city would once again be sacked, and the Jews would lose their place in this once great city. But just when you think things can't get any worse, they did. Enter the Greeks. Under the might of the, the Greek army and their fearless and brilliant commander known as Alexander the Great, who by 325 BC had conquered most of the known world, including Jerusalem, under his rule, the, the Jews would be once again uh, scattered and dispersed. And things under Alexander weren't great, but they were, for the most part, manageable uh, until he died in 323 BC. And what this did is it started a, what's called a succession crisis, with the, the warring leaders that were left from his armies kind of vying for position, uh, the position that the once great Alexander held. Right, and it's here that we get a little bit of help from the Apocrypha. 
Right, so if you look in the book of First Maccabees, you read the narrative of what happens following the death of Alexander the Great. According to First Maccabees, uh, one such leader uh, following uh, Alexander the Great by the name of Antiochus IV decided to make a strong push to rule the known world, and thus began a, a strong push against the Jews. This resulted in an invasion of Jerusalem, which included the taking of everything precious in it and carrying all of the, the treasures of the temple off into his own land. Right? He stole, he conquered, he, he demanded a tribute from the Jews, uh, many times wiping out entire kind of villages and small groupings of the Jews uh, scattered throughout the land. That is, until he entered a town of Modain. Right, the leader of the city was a man by the name of Mattathias. He was a Jewish priest who, who took exception to the demands of Antiochus IV, and in particular, the demand that the Jews give up worship to the true God and pay tribute to him. So after assembling quite a few supporters with the surrounding area, kind of making a call and having Jews kind of gather in Modain, the representatives uh, from Antiochus IV initially tried to come and bribe Mattathias into directing the Jews to, to honor the king, a move that, that seemed reasonable to Antiochus IV, but was rather offensive to Mattathias. And so in anger, Mattathias, he strikes down any who followed the king's decrees and the messengers who came to have this kind of discussion with him in Modi'in. And as you can imagine, this is kind of a declaration of war. All right, so while Mattathias dies relatively early on in the conflict, his son, Judas Maccabeus, picks up the fight. And it's in the midst of the leadership of Judas Maccabeus that the Jews decide to return to Jerusalem and take back the temple from the Greeks. All right, and so they make a beeline to Jerusalem. Around 164 BC, uh, Judas Maccabeus reclaims and cleanses the temple in Jerusalem, restoring the altar and, and kind of all the points of Jewish worship associated with it. The, the priests build a new altar, they, they dedicate it to God in this big celebration that lasted for eight days, where the oil in the lamps never ran out. If that sounds a little bit familiar, it should because Judas declares that there will be a celebration to be commemorated every year in a new holiday called Hanukkah. Right? So Hanukkah comes from the, the narrative of Judas Maccabeus and his retaking of Jerusalem and the temple. But the celebration didn't last long. With the numerous victories of Judas over Antiochus IV, the strain of this war kind of wearies Antiochus and causes him to get ill and die, thus leaving a young son to be king and a whole host of other suitors that want to rule over his empire. Now we get to a man by the name of Demetrius. Demetrius is the, the nephew of Antiochus IV, and he believes that he should lay rightful claim to the throne. And so he approaches Antiochus Eupater, which is the son of Antiochus IV, and Lysias, which is Antiochus's kind of loyal general, uh, who were trying to make a run at ruling the kingdom. He kills them and then makes claim to the throne, appointing a new high priest of Israel, a man by the name of Alchemus, who would follow the will of Demetrius. So Demetrius kind of hired a priest that would be in his pocket. 
Now, you can imagine that this didn't go over real well uh, with Judas Maccabeus, as he wanted to make sure that whoever was the priest, the high priest of the people of God, was somebody who was devoted to God and not to the Greeks. All right, so, so Judas uh, Maccabeus decides to challenge Alchemus as a supporter of Demetrius. Demetrius, not happy with this, sends an army toward Judas. And though Judas walks away from the conflict with a solid victory, Judas Maccabeus knows that Demetrius won't stop. He's going to keep coming after him. And so Judas needs help. He needs an ally that will protect the interests of the Jews without sacrificing their identity like so many nations have done before. And so Judas comes up with a plan. He needs a strong ally that will allow them to maintain who they are as the Jews, and he's heard about a government that will allow just that. Hearing of a strong and powerful government that operates as a democracy where the Jews would have their best chance of survival, Judas sends a letter of intent for an alliance between the Jews and the Romans. Okay, Rome, wanting to eliminate Demetrius, who had escaped from a prison they had him in several years earlier, uh, the, Rome wants to kind of get rid of him and kind of take him out of the picture. And so they see the benefit of an alliance with Judas and his army, and so they agree to the terms. And thus the alliance of Roman rule and Jewish government is born. And this leads us to, to so many important details about how the Jews operate in Jerusalem and in connection with the Roman government. Uh, and it kind of gives us a better understanding of how we have all these different Jewish officials that we have in the New Testament with each of their roles and purposes and, and how things sort of operated in the days of Jesus. And these are all important topics that we're going to get into next week uh, when we do the podcast as we continue to set up uh, the Sermon on the Mount and discuss the history and context leading into the Gospel of Matthew. All right, so I look forward to, to kind of talking with you more about that next week. Okay, uh, so now as uh, we kind of close that off, uh, many of you know Bold Speak likes to, to make sure we connect with our audience through social media, and we see the value of these tools to engage in a conversation with you and kind of keep you up to date on what's happening with Bold Speak. But like anything, it can be misused or even abused. And one social media platform is teetering dangerously close to the edge. And it is that that's the topic of what we want to discuss a little further on this edition of The Wire. I never understood Twitter. It always seemed to me that if I had something important enough to say to the whole world, limiting it to 140 characters makes it just seem trivial. And yes, I know you can use 280 characters now, but it still just seems lame. In all honesty, aside from the occasional creative accounts like Wendy's, Twitter has become largely irrelevant to me. That is, until I noticed something that made Twitter go from irrelevant to troubling. As I read through my news briefings on my phone to keep up with the day's events, I stumbled upon a trend that started to bother me. Between President Trump's endless stream of consciousness and the explosion of the Twitterverse over the absence of Denai Guerrera's name on the Avengers Endgame poster, it occurred to me. Twitter, it seems, is the official social media hub for voicing problems. I'm not entirely sure when it happened or why even, but all of a sudden it seems that Twitter is the place to go if you want to just voice frustration over something, whine about a problem, or show dislike for someone or something. 
I mean, think about it. When is the last time you heard something along the lines of, Facebook exploded today with people sounding off about how horrible this thing was? Or when is the last time people voiced frustration over something via Instagram? It appears to me that Twitter has become the social media hub for disgruntled misanthropes, frustrated consumers, and the generally angry. But why? What makes Twitter the target medium for such passionate displeasure? Now, I'm not saying that it's all misdirected. The, the story with Denai Guerrero's name warranted attention, and she deserved to be named on that poster. But for some to call Marvel, quote, cowards and, quote, shame them into adding her name assumes intent in a stance of conflict where it seems it wasn't necessary. Marvel came back and immediately righted the wrong, giving the indication that it was just a simple mistake. But that didn't stop people from going to their favorite home for complaining in 280 characters or less and blasting the latest target for the unhappy masses. James 5.9 reminds us to not grumble against each other. Ephesians 4.29 tells us that we should only speak that which builds each other up. I'm not sure how or why Twitter became a place for angry words and protest, but it did. And I think it needs to stop. As our collective mothers used to say, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. And that's not to say that we can't use social media to address problems. In that regard, it can be a helpful tool. However, it is saying that conflict management doesn't automatically require you to be a jerk. Assume the best and address the problem with respect and dignity. An important message in a world where it appears that good conflict management is becoming less and less common for people who just want to use social media to spout off their anger and avoid conflict altogether. But that's another topic for another day. Until then, how about we fix our attitude before we try to fix the problem? Remove the plank from your own eye before discussing the speck in your neighbor's eye. Someone who knows a thing or two about the world once said that. Sounds like good advice. That's all for this episode of the Bold Speak Podcast. Thank you so much again for joining me. Make sure you connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at forward slash The Bold Speak. Check us out on our website at www.theboldspeak.com. And make sure you subscribe to this channel and our other channels to make sure you stay up to date on the latest content information as we release them. Until next time, everyone, I am Anthony Creeden, and that is The Bold Speak. <laughs>